Welcome back, everybody. And even if you don't have a body, I'm Layman Pascal out front, so you don't have to be encouraging the urge to merge, converge, and emerge. And this, friends, is the Integral Stage Author Series, where we explore and promote texts that serve the unfolding cultural, intellectual, practical, and spiritual space of the liminal, meta, game B, integral, buildungian, developmental, and transformational communities. So put that in your five-dimensional pipe and smoke it. Today, our guest is metamodern sage, visionary poet, and experimental philosopher Adia Hanzi, whose new book, Emergentism, takes us on a journey through the narrative potential of contemporary science into a mythically resonant and dynamic post-relativistic worldview that just might provide the seed for the future religionization of planetary civilization in a way that actually addresses our shared need for collective action and existential satisfaction in the age of the metacrisis. And since the Wi-Fi in his Alpine Hermitage is spotty at best, we're very lucky to have him here today. Hi, Adia. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> this is an audacious text. It even says at the beginning, and I quote, feel free to bulk at the audacity and chastise it for being too naive and doomed to fail. So let's assume that I've done that, that I've bulked and I've chastised, that I've pretty soundly denounced the ludicrous hubris of your attempt to lay the foundation for a trans-scientific religion of unfolding depth and cosmic awakening. Take all of that as a given. Mm. Now, on the other side of all that, maybe you would be good enough to steal man or titanium man, as Ryan Nakate might say, the argument for being audacious in this regard. Why is your foolhardiness here a possible virtue? Hmm. Good question. I believe that we find ourselves in an existential predicament. Hmm? One that has been referred to by a meaning crisis. And um, this is no small problem. And no small problems call for no small solutions. <clears throat> so we must be bold. We must be audacious. And um, what was your question again? <laughs> why, why is the audacity of this project a virtue here? Why, why do we need ah, to yes. be audacious? Because it's, it's a pretty preposterous thing that this book is attempting. Yes, yes, yes. Well, one way of thinking about it, which I would propose right now to you, Layman Pascal, is we find ourselves in a crisis, an existential crisis, Layman, a meaning crisis, and a planetary crisis, which hitherto for humanity has not experienced at such a scale. So... <clears throat> The situation that we find ourselves in is truly novel. And if we are to navigate beyond this situation, we will need the most audacious of proposals, stratagems, characters, proposals. So, when one considers complex systems and points of leverage, what are also called the leverage points, one needs to consider the boldest 
possible solutions at a scale never considered. So, yes, let us be bold. Let us be audacious. And if the moment calls for a new religion, well, let us rise to the occasion. I noticed that you mentioned Jamie Wheel several times in the introduction alone to this book. Do you have a man crush on him? Is he your mortal enemy? Are you reinventing the wheel? What's the relevance of Jamie's thinking to the project you're working on in this volume? Well, it's always important to make points of contact to find relevant nodes where ideas being presented can land softly. And Jamie's ideas have now been in the zeitgeist, so to speak, in the scene, layman, such that it seemed helpful to be able to rely upon ground already laid. If we're building grand structures, grand cathedrals, and former souls and voices and dare I say, prophetic personae have come before us and laid the ground, then one shouldn't reinvent the wheel, but rely upon what's already there. I also have a man crush on Jamie Wheel, and that's part of it. Let's get a little bit of the book's terminology out of the way for our audience. What does meaning 3.0 mean? And what the hell is civilizational design? Good questions. So you mentioned Jamie Wheel. Jamie formulated the conception of a meaning 3.0. And I found his formulation helpful to situate and contextualize my own work, my own ideas. And by my own, I shouldn't necessarily take credit for them, but they are mine. And the notion of meaning 3.0 in this context would be as follows. Traditional meaning constitutes meaning 1.0, which is our mythic understandings of reality. Those mythological worldviews and justification systems that served us well for many millennia. However, tragically, but also fortuitously, these became unfortunately outdated with the rise of modern rationalistic theoretical thinking, the source of the meaning crisis as I identify it. And meaning 2.0 arose in the context of critique of traditional religious mytho thinking, such that new ways of considering human potential and activity emerged around 1500. And these served us well for many a century. Democracy, cultural liberalism, scientific rationalism, and the whole theoretical enterprise was at our disposal. But these two have run their course and met their limits. And now we are finding the breakdown of even this second very functional, serviceable system of meaning today. 
And so this provides the required urgent need for a third approach, one that builds upon the previous ones, that is meaning 3.0, one that takes into consideration the entire wealth of rational thought, as well as mytho-religious thought, and finds a way of reconstructing meaning for the 21st century. Now, my man crush Jamie does a good job situating this particular cultural need, and he referred to it as meaning 3.0. It has a sort of technological ring to it, and I find that that may land well with folks in considering that meaning is itself something we need to update. And meaning 3.0 then becomes a sort of design task, such as software designers might consider in considering the programming of society. And though I know little about technology, the only thing I use as a tool is this handy rod to move my arm. I'm not much of a technologist, but I find this metaphor to be apt and to consider our current situation and what's required of us, I believe we are called vocationally to be programmers of the future, you might say. Adya Hanzi is a futurist and a theorist and a scientist. And we find ourselves in need of new moorings a new foundation for our thought and our worldview system, beliefs. And this is what is meant by meaning 3.0. Now, civilizational design, as mentioned earlier, falls in the context of our grand existential situation, which requires bold, audacious points of leverage. And so, if we're to change the course of an entire society and the direction that we as a global species are heading in, we'll need to think strategically about our next moves. Do you see? <laughs> do you see, Layman? I do. I do, Adia. I'm right there with you. A couple other words I think are pertinent to define, because this book proposes itself to be a journey from logos to mythos to religio. And for those of us who didn't go to a fancy Ivy League puppet university or spend thousands of hours watching leading edge philosophically oriented puppet YouTube content, mm. could you define what you mean by logos, mythos, and religio? Sure. And let me disabuse your listeners Adya Hanzi is not the product of the Ivy League of puppetry. I came from Sesame Street. I came from the cave. I spent many years in the cave. And that is the source of my knowledge, you see. <clears throat> so please do not class me with these mocha-sipping elites. Adya Hanzi sips no mocha. <laughs> Fair enough. Point taken. 
Thank you. To your question, religio etymologically refers to a linking back and also observance. Religio means to tie back, according to one philological reconstruction of the etymology. And by this, we mean finding one's context in a long succession, a heritage, a tradition. Hmm? This is important. Layman, this is important. I have tried to do this in the book, situating emergentism in its intellectual and spiritual history. But religio means more than that. It also means observance. The word neglect is the opposite etymologically of this understanding of religio. And the opposite of neglect is dutiful observance. And so religio also entails a, to use a Vervakian phrase, an ecology of practices, duties, ethical living in relation to the ideas that one finds in the core of the system. Layman, do you see? So that is the nature of religio. And any religion will be successful in both of these aspects of the etymological interpretation. Now, Adi Hanzi is no etymologist. I lived my life in a cave where there are a few etymology books. <laughs> oh no. So the notion of religio then will tie back to the ideas that one finds at the core of the system. And logos here is our guide. Logos is a different frame of approach, one rooted in evidence, logic, hence logos. And the book begins there from the logical side of the equation. One thing that I find important to do is to lay out the empirical, logical, scientific, and rational framework for this uh, paradigm up front so that we have a even understanding of the ideas at play and only then to transfer into the mythic register. You see. Now, historically, this progression occurred in the opposite direction. We came from myth to science, but the current needs of our contemporary meaning crisis and our cultural situation require us to make the inverse move, layman, to go in the other direction. And so we do. <clears throat> so the mythic register is, in this case, a transposition of the logical ideas laid down in the first part of the book 
into symbolic and mythological imagery, into scripture and symbol. Does that answer your question? Yes, that was excellent. Thank you. And it brings me to a further question uh, about what the logos of today actually is, because I think mm. uh, most puppets, even those living in caves, are aware that uh, Lehman Pascal defines religion as a cultural apotheosis in which diverse genres of human activity are woven together to produce an excessive coherence in which people can subsequently participate as a self-organizing factor. But this could be done in many ways. And in traditional societies, so-called pre-modern mythic agrarian feudal oligarchies with inherited hierarchical roles, there was this class of populist religions that we sometimes call anti-scientific, but really I think they enfolded the genre of science from within their own world historical niche. And a good Case in point is the allegiance between medieval European Catholicism and the Aristotelian Ptolemaic science. So it might be outdated, but it's not anti-scientific. And if the sciences and their epistemologies and methodologies, if the logos is a big part of what comes together in any epoch to produce effective religionization, then I'm forced to wonder what the science of today is pointing toward, because we're not, it seems, in the era of 19th century disembodied mechanistic reductionism. Science is now that thing that points to plural universes and quantum indeterminacy and fractals and biophotons and genetics and computational irreducibility. Science advocates meditation and talks about higher dimensions. So from your point of view, how would you describe where the Logos is at right now in terms of mythologizing and building a religio out of the scientific worldview? What is the scientific worldview today? Mm, good question. This is why they pay you the big bucks, layman. This is why I subscribe to your Patreon. See, Adi Hanzi is proficient at technology beyond beyond my hand rod. <laughs> He's not just a hand rod, man. <clears throat> Good question. I would think of it this way. With the advent of complexity science and fractal geometry and general systems theory and autopoiesis and autoregulation, autocatalysis, I could go on. The nature of the logos itself has shifted, which I think is what you're getting at. That the task is not simply to look to the logos of prior eras, not least of which the Enlightenment and scientific revolutionary era, but to consider the logos in our own time and how it has evolved that is precisely the logos that needs to be mythologized. It is precisely the logos that has not yet been mythologized until Adi Hanzi's work. And um, I believe if one were to look for pictorial representations of former logoi, which is the plural of logos, I think one would find that former logoi were linear 
were three-dimensional, were unidirectional, <clears throat> and that contemporary figurations of the logos are nonlinear and fractal, are multidimensional and different. And so if we're going to mythologize such a conception of the logos today, we'll need to rely on new symbols, new understandings, new images, such as the network, such as the recursive system, such as iteration, That is one way to answer that question. Thank you. I noticed in this book, Emergentism, that you tend to speak in terms of adaptive mimetic responses rather than developmental levels, stages, V-memes, or even worldviews. Not that those words aren't present, but that you seem to lean into this notion of adaptive mimetic response instead. Why is that your preferred phrasing here? Well, I would... I would suggest, Layman, that if you consult the text, I use a number of those words, worldview, value, justification system, cultural code, symbolic tool set. I consider these synonyms interchangeable. I find that the value to be gained from considering adaptive mimetic responses to environment helpful in helping to frame these theories in a scientific conception. Nor is such a framing absent from the original articulations. Of course, what you refer to as a V-meme comes from the translation of the work of psychologist Claire Graves by Don Beck and Christopher Cohen in a popularizing text of the 1990s. However, if you consult the work of Claire Graves directly, you will find that he theorizes these V-memes in terms of adaptive mimetic responses, and that the very nature of a double helical system is the relationship of an organism to its environment, which triggers certain adaptive responses in the brain. Now, we all know, or should know, as even a caveman should know, that Graves' understanding of the brain was woefully inadequate. There are no latent structures lying in wait to interpret our adaptive needs in relationship to our environmental requirements. Nevertheless, the framework still holds true that organisms find themselves in particular environments and that we can best understand the evolution of knowledge itself as the relationship of organism to environment, as even Jean Piaget recognized in his work. So this is an important framework that we cannot discard. And while it's easier perhaps to speak in popularizing terms such as value memes and such, I found that especially in the logos part of this book, it was required that we deal with the theoretical notions and ideas on their own terms and in the most rigorous way. This book seems to offer us a meta-modern emergence-based worldview. 
But I'm wondering whether we suffer a meaning crisis, a nihilism problem, because we lack a worldview to give us purpose, or do we suffer it because we think a worldview is necessary at all? Is, is nihilism perhaps the inevitable outcome of making our value experience dependent upon narratives and socially shared visions? Ah, lovely question. Now you're getting into it, Lehman. Now you've got it. <clears throat> yes, yes. I would say that the narrativizing function of the human mind lies at the core of our being. And as evolutionary creatures who, even if we're to come to advanced stages of development, even to the point that you suggest of a construct-aware and deconstructive mode in which narratives themselves are reconsidered and broken down and destroyed and recognized for the entirely contingent and constructed notions that they are, we must first pass through a narrativizing element of our development. Do you like that, Layman? <laughs> element of our development? It will be the title of a future book. So our very nature of being human beings requires that we pass through a narratological zone of understanding. I think if we're to consider ourselves as full human beings that fully adapt to the requirements of our situation, that will require that we not jettison any of the aspects of our identity that we've picked up along the way, but to, as the great sage Ken Wilbur has aptly suggested, we transcend and include them, requiring that wherever we end up along this trajectory, it will include, if you will, fossilized versions of our prior selves. And more than that, still highly active, but reconfigured and recontextualized deployments of the very strategies that we use to properly navigate our prior circumstances and environment. This will include narrative, meaning narrative is required in a developmental stage, henceforth in our development, to be properly integrated and shouldn't be balked at, but recognized as fulfilling the fundamental role that it does. Now, when one does progress from the purely narratological standpoint, which in the Piagetian schema is usually found somewhere in the concrete operational stage, one can, of course, through the acquirement of certain formal operational schemata, reach certain levels of abstraction that render narratological frames of reality, if not obsolete, then at least highly problematic. It therefore requires that if we are to continue in our developmental progress, we will need to deconstruct the narratives and worldviews hitherto adopted. And this is a vital part of development. As Susan Greuter herself recognized in the appellation of a construct-aware stage. So deconstruction is itself part of the developmental process. Now, one does not get lost in the deconstruction, hopefully, or else one is thoroughly cast adrift. and lost to the seas of nihilism and vertigo, as Adia Hanzi was at one point in his own development. But I will not speak of that here. Rather, I will gesture to the developmental stage that lies beyond deconstruction. Do you see, layman? Such that we understand narrative differently 
after deconstructing narrative. We understand worldview differently after deconstructing worldview, part of which requires that we understand narrative narratologically, and we understand worldviews as a worldview of worldviews. So these notions return fractally, recursively. That is my answer to you. How does this idea that our sociocognitive worldviews grow more complex by adapting to new cultural and technological world conditions stand relative to the sense that maybe some people in the distant past were deeper, more conscious, more awake on God's behalf, maybe even more humane than modern or even traditional people? How does emergentism make sense of ancient supercomplexity and spiritual illumination that might exceed contemporary psychology in its complexity? Mm, good question. There are many layers to this important issue. Where should I begin? I think here it's required to resurface the notion that you surfaced initially, which is why frame this at all in terms of adaptive mimetic responses? Well, part of that is that we can understand the evolutionary need as it relates contextually to organisms in a particular environment. Now, while it may have been highly adaptive for, for example, the Kalapalo of Brazil, or the Walpiri of Central Australia, or any number of hunter-gatherer-forager societies of incredible brilliance, deep understanding of nature, to understand their environment in relation to its herbal qualities and intricate biological reality. In the context of a 21st century society, digitally mediated, with the encroachments of capitalism and neoliberal ideologies and technological warfare and various other incursions from societies of more complex social organization, one can appreciate that at a certain point, the adaptive needs of one's worldview require coming to terms with one's situation. Now, so long as those aforementioned encroachments and incursions can be kept at bay, different worldviews can be kept afloat. But to the extent that we are becoming a globalized civilization, increasingly connected, increasingly networked, digitized, for good or ill, the sheer complexity of our modern, postmodern, metamodern society requires that humans, if we're to succeed in our new environment, must adapt to it. The point being, it's not so simple as to look at different worldviews and be able to suggest that we can acontextually consider them or grade them or weigh them in the balance beam of the universe and suggest that this one is better or this one is worse. But what we can do is recognize a relative continuum of complexity and appreciate that to adapt to said complexity, organisms must develop certain stratagems through various mappings of their environment 
And those mappings will relate to various value systems and levels of cognitive capacity to deal with the complexity of the various variables and networked webs of relation that they find themselves a part of. So while it may be the case that a particular hunter-forager gathering society of the past or even the present might provide unique and necessary from a a historical, a contextual perspective, which of course then becomes a moral and a value because value and morality are contextually required to meet the circumstances of one's particular contingent situation and thus rendering the entire issue moot in an absolute sense if we are to be properly post-metaphysical in our thinking about such matters and therefore requiring that we take into consideration context and webs of relation. Does that make sense? I think so. <laughs> you had me at moot. Mm. Now, in this book, you use the metaphor of Euclidean dimensions to describe layers of complexified consciousness. Mm. And that's an interesting question, which is how much of what we want the word consciousness to mean is present in something like 0D or 1D consciousness? Do those even deserve the word consciousness? Hmm. Well, one, of course, must appreciate up front that these are constructions, heuristics, hmm? simple terminological phrases, and we must appreciate that these are heuristics and constructions meant for pedagogical purposes, that any consideration of a 0D or 1D consciousness is merely the artifact of a map-making process. And to quote the great sage Sri Wilbur once more, the map is not the territory. Hmm? So this must be borne in mind and our symbols and ideas and concepts borne loosely, hmm? held not so tightly or absolutely. Now, that being said, Adi Hanzi has tried to apply dimensional model to consciousness and not without some success, but what is one really referring to here? Adi Hanzi has had many conversations with other map makers and modelers, meta theorists. Adi Hanzi disagrees with some of them in seeing that language is a tool. And if we're to consider models and maps, we must appreciate that we are good nominalists, that there is no essential quality between some mathematical dimension and some structure of consciousness, but this is a metaphor, a symbol, a tool. Now, that being said, layman, if the question is, to what degree can we appreciate the least complex forms of human consciousness as being consciousness proper, well, I think that this requires 
digging deep into our human nature and being able to trace the continuities with our modern, postmodern, metamodern notions of self all the way back to our roots. And this doesn't just begin with human consciousness. No, this goes deeper into animal consciousness. For if you consider the relationship of the nervous system to what eventually gets developed through social, symbolic, linguistic constructions via language, one finds a continuum, a spectrum. So we should not be too quick to denigrate the various prior structures that have allowed us to ascend the teleological ladder of existence and find ourselves with deeper forms of knowledge. Indeed, our current knowledge is predicated on these earlier forms. That is an abstract way to answer your question. I can try to be more specific if you'd like. Please do. You singled out 0D and 1st-D consciousness specifically. Now, in Hadi Ahanzi's schema, this relates to the relationship of the organism in an environment where the social constructual apparatus is the organization of a hunter-gatherer society. And the organism is a part of said society in the one-dimensional frame, the organism becomes an egoic self in the context of the early state and a despotic, heroic, imperial society. Now, one of the important issues that needs to be raised here that has plagued many developmental stage theories that relate to ontogenetic as well as phylogenetic development is the unfortunate confusion that we can directly overlap ontogenetic stages onto structural stages of the society. And this is only true in part. As Jürgen Habermas notes, no society is can be predicated on entirely childlike behavior one sees in the sensory motor stage, for example. And yet, these are the schema that many tend to work with. My point being that when we consider zero-D consciousness, such as I label it, we are actually considering a form of consciousness and a social organization that is perhaps more complex than hitherto appreciated by various integralists or even metamodernists. Therefore, this should make us wary of too quickly denigrating the achievements of these incredible civilizations, if they can be so-called, and social structures and consciousness structures. And this holds true for first dimensional consciousness as well. But I feel as though I'm boring you, layman. <laughs> Adi, one of the most fascinating things in this book, especially considering you as an autodidact caveman, is the care that you bring to the notions of entropy and information science mm. to help explain this teleological ladder of development. In your mind, how is, 
how are those layers of contemporary information science and thermodynamics plausible drivers for the unfolding of matter to life to mind and spirit how are they plausible how yeah. do you mean what, what, what makes you um what makes you reach for metaphors and in the scientific domain of something like entropy to describe this ongoing evolutionary process? What makes that seem like a plausible move to you? Mm, yes. Okay. So while it should be very clear, if anyone were to read the book, that Adya Hanzi is a fierce critic of simple reductionism, at the same time, Appreciating a tiered structure to the universe and to the organism recognizes that there is a continuum that reaches from complexity to simplicity. Now, simple structures must be retained and included within more complex situations, meaning that what pertains at the simplest levels of organization must have correlates and contextual relationships to more complex situations. One of the great confusions with disastrous results of the scientific reductionists was to assume that we could explain all cosmic phenomena in terms of the simplest matter and particles and forces. And the reasons why this is terribly disastrous, I detail in the book, along with that god-awful co-author of mine, Brendan Graham Dempsey. Now, the issue at stake here is that while we can't reduce all the complex phenomena that we see in reality to the base constituent parts, we do build complexer structures and organizations on top of the simpler levels. Meaning that, as I said earlier, the very nature of complexity requires that it subsist upon earlier forms of simplicity. Now here, reductionistic science can play a part, and indeed physics does its role. So one shouldn't discount at all the importance of fundamental concerns such as energy, entropy, thermodynamics, particles in motion. The point is not to make these disappear and I'll focus only on complexity. Point is rather to see how complexity arises or rather emerges from simplicity. Meaning that any complex organism will have a level of its substratum that does accord in fundamental ways to the laws of physics and the crude deterministic laws of entropy and thermodynamics. So these things must carry forward even when we consider notions about culture and language and consciousness. Not to explain them entirely through those terms, but to see how they carry through, to see how they persist at the level of these complexer levels of organization. Therefore, any successful meta-theoretical framework will not lose sight of entropy and energy and thermodynamics, but will rather track these reductionistic elements into the higher domains of complexity. Now, when one considers such things as culture and consciousness and language and spirituality, that means that one must find a role in the proper one for such things as energy and entropy. And hitherto for, 
Not much has been done to appreciate this fact. It's either been swept under the rug or, again, reductionistically reduced to oblivion. Adi Hanzi finds this very unfortunate. Adi Hanzi says, we need both. We need all, do you see? And so it's not that one should seek for the answer or the final explanatory framework in terms of energy and entropy when con considering complexity, but rather to understand that these persist continuously in the substratum of all further complexification and indeed provide its initial, anyway, uh, catalysts such that organization itself feeds on, requires disorganization. <clears throat> Audio. I got a fly in my throat. <laughs> One of the hazards of cave life, I'm sure. Um, That's right. When we take the contemporary logos and poeticize it, we do get this amazing emergent and emergentist worldview that has a grand aesthetic to it. And that kind of beautiful, complex, intricate, rich world picture is a part of what religio has offered historically. But another part of what religio has offered is moral and ethical instruction. What does your vision in emergentism teach us about how to live? Yes, <clears throat> this is covered in some depth in the final chapter of the book. By final, I mean accepting the conclusion. I'm falling off my stool. I apologize. <clears throat> Adia Hanzi. Adia Hanzi is. <laughs> Wait, I'll get it out. <clears throat> Adia Hanzi is a repositioner and a stool sitter. <clears throat> um, yes, as I point out in the chapter on ethics and practices towards the conclusion of the book. It is not enough for some original claims about reality or to say it is so and so and that is such and such, but rather knowledge itself is transformative of behavior. As indeed, <clears throat> knowledge is itself constructed of, constitutive of behavior, as again, Piaget himself even recognized. So that when I learn a thing, it has a bearing on how I carry myself in the world or should anyway, but we won't get into the is and ought distinction here, rather to say that what ought to be done when one understands a thing is to adjust one's behavior accordingly. So Adiahanzi does not write useless books about nonsensical, useless ideas. Adiahanzi writes necessary books about necessary ideas that change the world. Adiahanzi writes books about things that matter. You see, not nonsense, jabber. So you ask specifically, how does this information, this knowledge about reality change our behavior? I would say in the following specific ways. One, we must appreciate 
that, as the universe itself is a multi-tiered, multi-level organism, so are we, with levels that must be considered at the material, the biological, the neuronal, and the cultural. And to neglect any one of these layers would be to lead us to great pathologies, as has indeed been done. So, for example, religious traditions of the past have had a serious problem with the matter level and have denigrated matter and have considered it vile and base. But with a proper understanding that the emergentist framework affords, one can see that though matter is indeed base in terms of being basic, it is not therefore vile or bad, simply less complex. And we must tend to our material substrates just as much as we attend to our biological substrates so that we can appreciate as beings with biological and neuronal necessities that we are animals. Do you see? That we are life. And that this understanding should lead us to appreciate that, for one, we are kin with the animals, kin with other life, and this should affect our behavior towards them. Not least to say that appreciating our animal nature should understand the importance of our biological drives and needs evolutionarily should lead to a celebration and appreciation and integration of the sexual function. But whereas historically, the appreciation of our animal nature has ended there through simplification and reductionism leading to terrible results, which cause people to assume that human beings are no more than animals. We should also appreciate that we have a cultural, linguistic, self-conscious level as well. That means that while we can celebrate our animal nature, it is not all. What I'm getting at, Layman, is that historically, different religious traditions and ideological positions have tended to pathologically limit themselves in understanding the full integrated stack of the human being and of the cosmos at large such that we are either reducing all things to matter or else saying that human beings are only animals and nothing but, or that we negate our animal nature and suggest that we are purely immaterial spirit, etc. These are gross pathologies that have led to many tragic misunderstandings. So, emergentism presents a full comprehensive picture of the human being one that is an integrated stack of various levels that must be tended to in their entirety. This has profound implications on how we live life, how we value what we value, what we do, and what we don't do. That would be a very abstract way to answer your question, Layman. But if you read the final chapter of Emergentism, you will find very specific formulations for certain practices that are optimally designed to tend to these various levels of your being. And I can name some of those if you choose, but I can also not. I so choose. Yes, very well. So if we consider the material substrate, we can appreciate that there is a level of reality of which we are a part and which also constitutes various objective items in our environment that are purely inanimate, that are pure material. 
Now, what does this mean? Fundamentally, we must appreciate, Layman, that there is a core dichotomy at the core of reality, a fundamental tension between order and chaos, between order and disorder, between regularity and randomness. And indeed, complexity is the sweet spot between the two. But we must appreciate that. The universe fundamentally has an entropic desire to speak anthropomorphically for a minute to reduce all levels of organization to informational disorder and disarray. And this is the nature of entropy. Appreciating this fundamental reality, we don't recognize some intrinsic law that all of the universe is designed to destroy order. No, layman. Rather, we appreciate the fact that this very entropic force leads to the production of order and design in the universe. <clears throat> Another fly. Now, that being said, we can be shepherds of order. Shepherds. Shepherds, laymen, of order and design and structure. This is important. Now, it might not seem like the most spiritually fulfilling practice that a human being could actively do. And you'd be right. It wouldn't be. It's but the base level, layman. Sorry, I don't mean to get so worked up. All right, I appreciate your passion, Adia. I am passionate, layman. Now, moving forward, similarly, we find the same reality at the level of life, such that what do we care about at the level of life, layman? We care about the vital principle. We care about vitality. We care about strength and vigor. Now, of course, you'll have your cynics in the crowd and skeptics and nihilists who will say, that's what it's all about. But they'd be wrong. They'd be missing two other levels, layman. Life is more than just power and will to power. But we also must appreciate and integrate the insights of Friedrich Nietzsche, who, for example, recognized the will to power as a fundamental constitutive aspect of reality. Unlike Nietzsche, though, we do not relate this fundamental constitutive reality to the ultimate cause of concern and the ultimate explanatory module, but rather understand it as a particular contextual level of our multi-tiered reality of being. So, the human being does many things, including, layman, including maintaining themselves, maintaining their environments, but also thriving, flourishing, experiencing the rugged requirements to retain their anti-fragile state and to further push themselves in terms of the life principle. But that's not all, layman, because we are also mind. We also have mind, layman, and that means that we are neuronal creatures we are feeling creatures and with feeling in the nervous system we get pleasure and pain and then the basis of value no longer just in the maintenance and reproduction of the organism no but in terms of pleasure and pain the rudimentary and crudest forms of value and again these are not all but we must value them we must value crude value 
We must value pleasure. We must value the fundamental crudest notions of beauty and goodness that appear at this level. And finally, layman, there's the linguistic, cultural, self-conscious stage of the human organism, which is where we can apply our rational thought. I'm gesturing towards my head, my neocortex, do you see? Because here we find the ability to apply goal-directed thought and rational theoretical considerations to our environment. And we can appreciate theoretically and abstractly the notions of complexity themselves. We can appreciate ourselves as selves, layman. Did you know that you weren't a self until you had language, layman? That's right. So practices at the level of culture include learning through conceptual understanding, reading, meditation, and other forms of metacognitive awareness that draw their focus on the very notion of a self and a perceptival knower which is what the culture level affords us. And only from there can we gain our footing in the mystical domains of reality. The mystical domains, layman. Only there does that answer your question. Oh, more than adequately, thank you. Why doesn't the notion of God's change and evolution undermine his value? Because I think Bull might fear that the supreme signifier loses potency if it isn't regarded as statically perfect and always already maximal and totally incorporative. Why is that not necessarily the case? It can be the case. Now, this is another very good question that would require some unpacking. There's many elements to this, many elements. I say it could include that because I consider the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead, who in articulating his philosophy does so in an echo of other various idealists and other philosophical streams of thought who posit that there are actually two poles of the deity, one, the primordial, and two, the consequent, the consequent deity. And if one frames it in such a way, one can understand that the absolute can be both eternal and perfect, and yet also be contextualized within time and the processes of change. This is to have your cake and eat it too, layman. Do you see? Now, I don't mean to denigrate the notion of an absolute unchanging deity. It has certainly been important in the history of religion. Plato found a use for it. Certainly the Christians did. And many of the monotheistic, <clears throat> the monotheistic traditions had their use for such a notion. I would say, however, layman, 
that while this notion might attract certain religious sympathies in a particular way, we must appreciate two aspects. I have an inability to show only one or two digits, so you must bear with me. But there are two elements that we must consider, one of which, one of which is that this notion of an absolutistic deity, unchanging and eternal, is both developmentally contextual, which I will come back to, and two, it creates many problems of its own. So while it might attract certain religious sympathies, it also creates grand needs of a theological nature for what are called theodicies, to name but a example. So let me take those two in turn. The first notion is that it's contextually developmentally contingent upon certain structures of thought that only emerge in a particular stage of development of the organism and the society. If one considers the ancient traditions, and by that I mean very early religious conceptions of the sacred and the profane, one will find no such notion of an absolutistic, ideal, eternal, unchanging deity. Rather, one finds powerful beings, a diffuse but overwhelmingly powerful impersonal force, which the anthropological literature refers to as mana or orenda or wakan, and other such terms as come from various Melanesian tribes and societies. And here we find no notion of any utterly transcendent absolutistic deity. Indeed, nor do we find it in the next level of development where we get to polytheistic conceptions of deity you find various notions of deities that are personified and anthropomorphized in terms of the human being as they relate to the various needs and requirements of society and the agricultural calendar. Here one finds no absolute, no universal. It is only once one begins to find religion entering the abstract stages of consciousness where the religious notion of the sacred is made universal and absolute. And here one finds, as one enters formal operational thought, the ideas of Plato and the Axial Age and the various notions of transformation that occur with the idea of the Logos and the Absolute, which in, in their historical turn come to dominate in the history of religion, in particular monotheistic traditions. So what does this mean? that God as the absolute eternal unchanging is not indeed unchanging or absolute, but evolved. And that that very evolution and developmental sequence is obscured because of the very notions of that stage of developmental thought, you see. Now, that's point one. Point two, if I can recall, had something to do with, ah, yes. The Odyssey. So while the notion of an absolutistic, absolute universal deity has certain qualities, certain pros, you could say, such as the psychological calm and reassurance that comes from knowing that there is some fixed point, that there is some absolute entity and being, capital B, that holds and contains all things with love and care. Indeed, such things are very powerful. That's a very beautiful 
and reassuring notion. But at the same time, one must consider if we were to actually take seriously such notions of an absolutistic deity, one that's omnibenevolent and omnipotent and omniscient, then we are faced with quite the theological conundrum, layman, because look around, suffering, tears, weeping children, weeping layman, weeping Adyahanzi at Christmas with no presents in his cave, very sad, very lonely, darkness, very sad, dark world we live in, layman. Where is this omnipotent, omnibenevolent deity now? What good does it do us now, layman? Does us no good. It only creates problems. Problems which must be solved developmentally by moving to a further stage of understanding of the notion of deity. And this is what Adi Hanzi provides. Do you understand? Uh, completely. I'm curious what other visionaries and theorists you think come close to the vision you're presenting. You've mentioned Whitehead, Wilbur, and Wheel. Are there other thinkers resonant with your work who don't necessarily start with the letter W? Hmm. Good question. I will say I find the work of Brendan Dempsey to be compelling but largely derivative, particularly of my own work. So while some may see some immediate connections there, I would caution them, caution them in that regard. I might add, perhaps predictably, and Adi Hanzi hates to be predictable, layman. As I discuss in the book, in the chapter on lineages, these ideas relate and can be interpreted through the work of such luminaries as Hegel, Teilhard de Chardin, and many others. I will say this, one of the fundamental concerns, one of the fundamental concerns of emergentism is the relation of the subject to the object, the perceiving being and the environment in which they inhabit. And conceived in this way, one could consider well, the entirety of philosophy to be bound up with these concerns as well. So I might bring in the works of Schopenhauer with the representation and the will. One might consider the role that Kant plays in appreciating the relationship of the knowing subject and the need for a category. In short, any thinker concerned with the problem of knowledge has some bearing on these questions. But in terms of how they answer them, that's the real issue. I think that one of the attempts of the emergentist framework is to synthesize our best understanding of scientific knowledge and philosophy and mysticism into a coherent framework for understanding reality in the 21st century. And so in that regard, no, it's very unique. It's very, very contemporary. It's not only unique, it, it's very rich and very intricate and seems like it would require a lot of people in order to be able to understand, appreciate, and enact. 
So there's a sort of question, as there is around all metamodern religion, uh, who is it for? Who can adapt to it? Does this require a lot of personal learning and development before someone could make use of this properly? Or is it something that is simply appropriate to the kind of civilization we live in now and therefore could resonate with anyone who's alive today and tomorrow? Mm. Again, this is why it's important to appreciate the relationship of organism to environment and to appreciate that worldviews are adaptive mimetic complexes that arise as needed evolutionarily for the benefit of the organism to sustain itself in a way that maintains its far from equilibrium state ultimately and fundamentally experiences a level of flourishing that permits it the continuation into the future. What I mean by that is that the problems that Adi Hanzi is concerned with are not all people's problems. The problems that plague Adi Hanzi, they don't plague everyone, layman. And if you're not plagued by Adi Hanzi's problems, you don't need Adi Hanzi's answers. Indeed, the answers of Adi Hanzi might be destructive, negative, life negating and life canceling but for those who need them they are life affirming and necessary as they were for Adi Hanzi so what i would say is that when we consider the nature of metamodernism or any multi-perspectival notion framework that considers the multi-tiered level of different worldviews as being constitutive of various different organisms realities in relationship to their environment we need to consider what the needs are of the organism and the environment. Now, one of the conflicts that we face at the moment is that the worldviews that some people are using to navigate their world might in some short-sighted and limited way be adaptive for them as individuals, but not adaptive for the species. In this regard, a worldview that could be more systemic in its scope and networked in its vision could be more adaptive for the species as a whole, even if the individual does not see the need for it. That's a possibility. Another possibility is that this is of no need to anyone except those who have faced the abyss, those who have deconstructed the various other potential worldviews on display in the markets of the world and said, those won't do. That's another possibility. So, I will leave that to people to decide who read this book and say either this is garbage, filth, and nonsense. This is trash. This is awful. This is terrible. And those who love it. <laughs>